Welcome, welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series exploring the research coming out of the Media Futures Hub at UNSW Sydney. I'm Dr Tanya Dreyer, I'm your host for today, and I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wadi Wadi people on Darawal country in what is now called Wollongong, Australia. And here on the pod, we acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past and present, and we express our solidarity with the movements for Black and First Nations lives. My guest today is Simon Taylor, a higher degree researcher in the Media Futures Hub and a research associate at the Allens Hub for Law and Technology, and they're both at UNSW. We're going to talk about Simon's work at the Allens Hub and also as part of an international collaboration on histories of AI. Lots to talk about for um, a short time. Simon Taylor, welcome to the Media Futures podcast. Thanks, Tanya. Nice to be speaking with you. And yes, I'm speaking on Gadigal land as part of your nation. Great. Thanks, Simon. And yeah, it's really great to have this opportunity to, to chat a little about your work. Mm -hmm. So to start off for a little further introduction, what are you working on right now? What are the projects? So these two projects that I thought I'd send through to like talk about today, they're two different kinds of communities that my research engages with as a researcher broadly in AI but also sensing imaging and biometrics you need to collaborate and talk to um, legal scholars but also historians infrastructure studies digital sociologists so the two groups I'm going to talk about really put me in context and contact with these people and building up kind of terms and glossaries and shared ways of speaking and researching on this really complex area of study. Brilliant. We might start with the histories of AI collaboration. What's the conventional story about the history of AI? Like, I know that's a really big question, but can you give me the, the quick short version? Yeah, so this community evolved out of a Mellon Sawyer seminar at Cambridge uh, in the UK. It was initially supposed to just be a summer school group discussing the histories of AI, which can be as diverse as it's, it's located in the history of science and, and with the Department of English Literature. So it crosses both technical analysis or socio-cultural analysis of systems and distance functions and where they evolved and emerged from, numbering, counting, calculation but also the term artificial intelligence itself, how it is a metonym, which means it's, it's a term that generates all sorts of associations like Wall Street or 9-11. They become signifiers, many different associations, myths and desires, also fictions. And you can encounter the many ways that fiction or science fiction shapes uh, the science industry and also like technical developments or technology. So really this group um, is working pretty broadly. When I started, it was in March, 2020. We were initially just gonna gather for two weeks at Cambridge, COVID happened, and they decided to incorporate all the scholars that had applied to, into the backdrop of the entire project that goes for two years. So we suddenly became a part of the whole two year project rather than two weeks. And there was 80 of us to start with. And that's people, I think I was the only person from Australia. It's people from Brazil, um, India, Philly, Singapore, New York, Minnesota, England, Denmark, you know, everywhere you can imagine. And I began engaging with them every month 
for me, it was like one or two in the morning, I would get up and sit with this community for two or three hours on different presentations, different research methods, different forms of analysis, different histories. It was a challenge to get up at that time and do and try and speak and think, but it also really drove my research in tremendous ways across the last two years. This year, I'll end up presenting three times or running a research group and presenting um, in December, and then also publishing with them in the British Journal for the History of Science, which is a special issue. And there's only 15 of us selected to publish in that, and I'm lucky to be one of them. Great. Hey, that's quite a pivot from a two-week project to a two-year project. That's one of the most, more serious pandemic pivots that, that I've heard about. And look, it sounds like the most amazing international collaboration. What's your specific story of the history of AI that you're, that you're contributing? So everyone was asked to uh, propose two kind of subjects that they were looking at. One that I proposed initially was a form of digital identity recognition, uh, which comes from my background working in sleep medicine. So I proposed looking at how blinking is recorded by computer vision or imaging technology. And I actually had to train one of these systems in a hospital setting. Blinking is used to determine aspects of fatigue in areas of like truck driving or control of really large vehicles in mining sectors. And it's trying to work out when someone falls asleep or is getting tired and the system will generally give them a notification or the machine will shut down. But um, since then, um, that kind of recognition has been used across many different areas, including online environments like liveness tests to detect if you're a human, um, to enter your banking or to open your phone, um, all sorts of ways like that. So I proposed that as one initial contribution. And the second one, was that I discovered in my um, research on biometrics a particular mathematical function called the Mahalanoibis distance function. Now I'd never really heard of it or encountered it, but I started seeing it everywhere and I wondered what it was and where it emerged from and why it became so ubiquitous. And it turns out it was constructed in the 1920s and 1930s in India by um, a statistician, Mahalanoibis who's a really famous and celebrated figure in India. And he was critical to building Indian statistics and computation in the country. And he did some amazing things with computation and inviting experts around the world to do things like growing crops or mapping floodplains. But he also did a lot of early work on population demographics and classification of individuals. So his work was critically integrated in detecting race and groups really early on. They really innovated a distance function and then that spread into various systems across the world. And so I started analyzing that. Brilliant. And you've already painted such a broad canvas and so many issues and examples. We're thinking about blinking sensors and then we're thinking about colonial in India and measuring biometrics and the like. It's really just such a, a field that you're painting here. And I'm really intrigued then, what's brought you, what experiences have led you to be sort of uh, tackling these problems or issues? You mentioned you've worked as a sleep technician? Yeah, so I just, I managed to end up becoming like a, 
internationally registered technologist in, in medical area, um, sleep technicians specifically. So I do, I, it sounds more grand than it is. The actual uh, night work is mostly at night. And I worked in many different hospitals in Adelaide and Melbourne. And basically you would get people and you would attach a bunch of sensors to them, EEG, muscle sensors, eye sensors, oxygen sensors, all these different things. You would film them with infrared vision and the majority of people that I studied were for things like sleep apnea or, or insomnia and narcolepsy, but there was also a percentage that were research projects. And so I had to work with people with post-traumatic stress disorder, motor neurone disease, and also people who worked in shift work or mining industries for fatigue. And so that's when I began doing a research project training of fatigue detection system and I started seeing the broader implications on workers in risky environments, but also automated machines and robotics. And that really kind of opened my mind up to the arenas that um, these kind of technologies were going to engage with society and with people. And at that point, I decided to make a risky kind of career change. Um, it drew me out of night shift, which was great. Um, and out of the scientific realm, but then it plunged me into a PhD where I had to kind of build up on my knowledge again on these histories and the diverse social legal implications of um, technology. And that has been really worthwhile in the end, difficult, but really worthwhile. And I'm almost at the end of that journey. Well, at the end of a PhD journey in the beginning of another one, at least. Always the way. And so you've got that amazing start in terms of dealing with people experiencing sleep apnea and the like. And now you're, I know, starting some work looking at biometric and surveillance on animals, especially farm animals. Can you just tell me a little bit about just like what even is happening? Uh, what, it, you know, what even is going on? And, you know, what are some of the issues or implications that are arising for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting as you deep dive into some of these technologies you go further and further they are all connected so I started looking at blinking and how it was built and trained in computer vision and I found one particular algorithm that seemed to be really effective was trained on a rhesus monkey in a lab and so I didn't expect to find that even though the use of animals in neurotechnology experiments and all of that is is well known uh, I just wasn't expecting that and so I started seeing the use of animals in building and training these systems pretty early on. And now that I'm coming to the end of my PhD, I started looking more at surveillance and things like that. And I realized that uh, precision agriculture, which is a huge industry to map and trace food products, use of drones across like thermal imaging crops, but also tagging, electronically tagging animals has been this long history um, since the 60s. But you can connect it to things like branding and tattooing and scarifying that early farmers used to do. Um, and it turns out in Australia, I started looking at how biometrics are being used to determine things like muscle and fat and yield content on animals before they're slaughtered. Um, so they image animals um, in different ways, thermal imaging, biometric, surveillance. And the strange thing is I started to find some of these uses is in human systems as well. So there, there's this kind of translation between humans and animals that's going on inside these systems. So 
Yeah, it's an interesting area because you think that, you know, some of the ideas of privacy and bias and transparency in AI, um, and you think, where could I train these systems that wouldn't involve that? Well, you could just train them on cows, you know, in a field 24-7 and look at their gait and the way they move and their shoulder construction and their eyes and their faces. And then you could just transfer it across. Fascinating. Somewhat terrifying also um, and I, I mean it sounds to me like we should get you back at some time to you know to tease out much more about the potential for this work on the more than human but we do want to make sure that we talk also about your work at the Allens Hub so you you have a role as a research associate at the Allens Hub for Law and Technology what are you working on there? Uh, it's a good segue into it because I'm looking at broadly sensors still I stick to my kind of area also robotics. I met Mark Deleu, who's a really great um, legal scholar. Um, he's actually in Princeton at the moment at the Institute for Advanced Study. And he works in an area of mainly biolegality, but also something that he calls hybrid life um, or liminal law. And that's kind of looking at neurotechnology or AI or sensors and the changes to the human and how this impacts law and the distinction between people, things, objects, action, attribution. And so we wrote an article called Guidance Systems, looking at how law kind of is meant to guide the kind of impacts in robotics and sensors. And then since he's been to Princeton, I'm taking over the second part of the project. I'm looking at what philosopher of technology, Peter Asare calls predictability in practice and in principle. So, how systems are designed to be predictable in principle, so in test beds, prototyping, etc., and how they actually work in practice, and what that means for people in diverse areas like disability or dementia, how you know robotics or different kind of um, assistance systems can work, but also how they kind of gather data from these people and where that goes and where that's used, and also the kind of functional connections between how much agency should these systems have or how much control, meaningful control should they have over action and how much should be deferred again to human supervision or human direction. And so what I've decided to do, I was going to present at AI Leap, which is a conference at ANU and I was really excited about that in December, but it got deferred till next year. So I quickly switched to kind of having dialogues with social roboticists like Dr. Naoko Abe, who's really amazing um, at the Sydney Institute for Robotics. And um, so I went and did a small experiment with her with a robot and she filmed me interacting with a robot. And basically we carried a little kind of pool noodle up and down this warehouse. And we're supposed to collaborate together to move these items from one end to the other. But the robot was programmed to be unpredictable in different ways. And it was about my embodied way of working with the robot. Um, so that was a really good experience, um, you know, an embodied experience of robotics. And I did a short dialogue with her. And then I met Professor Hussein Abbas, who's, um, I think he's the deputy head of School of Engineering at University of New South Wales, Canberra. And he's been building systems for aeroplanes to all sorts of diverse robotics, swarm intelligence. And um, we met through Michael Richardson Autonomous Discussion Network. And he was really generous to have another dialogue with me, which I 
um, engage questions with him about this idea of designing systems to, uh, for machines and humans to interact, collaborate, but also kind of how do you work out when to defer to human control or to machine control in, in split second environments, risky situations, or even mundane circumstances. Yeah, I can imagine that some might be, be connections there to your work on autonomous vehicles. But I have to say, I'm so struck by the image of you, the robot, and the pool noodle in the middle. <laughs> I, I love the detail, the, the extremely low-tech detail of the, it is. Of, the, of the pool noodle. You've got such, you know, really exciting, but also really diverse collaborations going on there. And I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more in general about why this sort of interdisciplinary research is needed in this space you know, alongside legal scholars, lawyers, policy submissions and the like. What does the interdisciplinary bring? These systems, the more that you look into them, even if I choose minute details like a blinking algorithm or a particular mathematical function, the histories you end up in and the arenas you end up in, like mining areas underground or, you know, early 1900s India are so complex and entwined that it's not reasonable for any one person to provide useful claims or useful kind of directions on where these systems should go and how they should be guided and what kind of impacts they're going to have. You have to pretty much work in teams and you have to be able to talk together. Um, and to do this, you have to build up a series of uh, research methods, um, also like kind of your archiving and communication of data and also the kind of terminology you use. And also just reaching out and realizing that this kind of work, uh, if it's going to have impact, has to go beyond just kind of theoretical journal articles or explanations or presentations, however enjoyable they are. And they have to enter arenas where they're going to have, they're going to impact and change and kind of shape some of these technologies. And having worked in science before, um, I think I'm still really struck with this kind of area of impact and development. And so I'm, I'm becoming more interested in the idea of like standards, regulation and policy. And I've been really lucky at the Allen's Hub with um, people like Mark, but also um, Luria Bennett-Moses, just giving me opportunities to see how my evidence building can enter these kind of policy reports and also start to begin talking to, you know, standard frameworks of engineering and and things like explainability of AI or interpretability of AI or justifiability of AI, these kind of ideas, you know, they have to be understood not just by designers or engineers or researchers like myself, but they have to be understood by different groups in society and different individuals. Uh, and that's a really big challenge. And I think it's only working in places where you're putting close contact with teams and people with diverse but yet different expertise can that kind of really happen in an impactful way I guess. Yeah great and I'm, I'm hearing you there on terminology and I guess a, a lot of work that's maybe kind of translating or you know cutting across conversations as well as disciplines and the like. I know for just a, a final example of the, of the work you're doing right now, I know you're working on a, on a glossary of terms on robotics. Sounds super interesting. How exactly are you building that? What's in there? And why do we need to reconsider these, the basic concepts that have helped create artificial intelligence? 
it kind of came again from Peter Saro, philosopher of media and technology. And he was doing an early oral history of robotics where he just interviewed roboticists on their biographies, I guess, how they became interested in the field, what they did, where they learned. And it's really diverse in, its, um, in the arenas and the, in the geographies people came from. Uh, and I guess in my, when the conference got cancelled, AI Leap, I thought, what can I do that's simpler um, and not so isolated by myself? What can I do to embrace that kind of method? And so with Naoko, after our experiment, I quickly asked if she'd be willing to record a dialogue with me and it would be around terms like proximity, proximity of machines to humans, how you determine this, um, predictability, how, you, how the robot that I did the experiment was programmed to be predictable or unpredictable and why that was. And detection, you know, things like how do, how do these systems detect you or how do you respond to them in real life situations? And shit, that was a great dialogue. She had ended up studying, she's Japanese, but she'd ended up studying a PhD in France with a really famous roboticist called Jean-Paul Le Monde. What he wanted to do was program a more anthropomorphic movement into robots. So she ended up, he ended up collaborating with her because she had done dance before. And so she knew something called Laban notation, which is a way of like notating dance, um, kind of like how music is notated, I guess. And so he wanted to see if he could use this form of graphic notation to program robots. It didn't end up working <laughs> and it's not really needed. You know, um, the background for my video was from the movie Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, which is the Errol Morris movie. And it's got interviews there with Rodney Brooks early on. And he worked out that you don't need these robots to move in human ways. They just need to sense each other and be able to react and stop when they're at risk of falling or crashing or running into each things or each other. And so he, he was more interested in non-human forms of movement, like scrambling, rolling, these kind of things. And, and that actually proves to be much more effective rather than trying to have bipedal leg movement, better to have wheels or, or, or multiply articulated kind of scrambling movements. Uh, and you can see that in the Fukushima disaster in um, Japan when they try to use robots. Navigating such a complex environment required like really adaptive and nimble movement that you can't really program. So it has to involve sensing and um, adaptation. And I guess that's where my kind of expertise in sensing kind of intersects with these areas. And, and so, yeah, I spoke to her and then I spoke to Hussein Abbas and I was talking to him trying to bring out ideas of legality as well. Like how do we attribute error and how do we attribute action and how do we decipher or even define meaningful control in some of these systems? Um, so it's, it's an ongoing work and I'm hoping to have it up um, on a website shortly. And then the idea when Mark returns, we would perhaps publish a small glossary, but it's ongoing and it may involve several iterations in interviews. So, um, there's no deadline for it at the moment. It's, it's a way of engaging, again, communities and building up knowledge. Yeah, amazing. And um, obviously something that listeners can be looking out for that's going to become a public and growing by the sounds of things, um, a digital artifact mm. online resource. So much, so much to keep talking about and, and so little time. Simon, what's coming up next for you and where or how can we follow what you're doing? 
So immediately, as far as the histories of AI group, I will be presenting as part of, uh, it's kind of the final wrap up of their two year project. And I have to give a shout out to some of the people there, the people that are running it. Um, Johnny Penn comes to mind, Stephanie Dick, Matthew Jones, they're facilitating it and they've been really generous in inviting us to present. Um, so I'll be presenting on December 15th. That presentation is forming the special issue uh, for the British Journal History of Science and it's um, 15 articles from me and 14 other scholars, really amazing people like Aaron Plasic, Michelle Castile, Fernando Delgado, Bruno Moreschi from Sao Paulo. And so that'll be finalized in April, I think March or April, but I have to put my second draft into them on November 15th and I'm a little bit behind. I've got a month to kind of bring that together. So that's what will be up for me. And also I'll be submitting my PhD working the Islands Hub, and then hopefully the AI Leap conference comes back at the start of next year. And it'd be great to go down to Canberra and ANU again. I had a really good trip down there in 2019. Um, I went to the National Computational Infrastructure opening there. So I'm keen to get back and um, as everyone is to travel and meet people face to face again. So we'll see what happens. Pretty dynamic kind of few months. Brilliant, Simon. Um, so much on the boil and yeah, also in the mix, hoping for when we get some to, um, to discuss in the flesh again. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you so much, Simon. It's been really brilliant. Thank you. And thanks both to you and Michael for putting that, you know, driving the hub. The article that on the Mahalanobis distance function, you'll be able to read shortly. It's in Science, Technology and Human Values, I believe. And I did that with Kolobo Golson, who's at University of Sydney, and Duncan McJewy-Ra, who's in Newcastle. And so I wanted to acknowledge them and thank them for really giving me context for some of the kind of mapping that I was doing in that article. And also the researchers at Histories of AI. Kornima Paddy is a person worth looking up. She does work on the Indian Statistical Institute. And Projit Makaji, who I mentioned a lot in the article, and he's got a fantastic presentation online called Race by Numbers. So if you're interested in any of that, um, there's some resources to look at and people to look deeper into. And that's it for this episode of Media Futures Spotlights. For more info about the Media Futures Hub, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. And please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our star producer, the very talented Cara Jensen McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Bron Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from the School of the Arts and Media at UNSW, the University of New South Wales. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.